John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 80 of the Individual One podcast. And for the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod, as is uh, usually the case. Tons of news to discuss, including the Iranian ballistic missile attack on U.S. bases in Iraq and the president's speech just this morning happened about an hour or so ago. And, uh, you know, I am uh, pretty good at determining uh, what subjects I'm an expert on, uh, what I am not an expert on. And when it comes uh, to the Middle East, uh, I am not an expert. I have opinions just like a lot of other people do, but uh, I do not consider myself an expert, and I'm not really an expert on military affairs. So I wanted to bring in someone who is, and the best military expert I know personally has agreed to join us, and he does so now. He is Tom Nichols. He is a professor at the Naval War College, although it's important that you know he's not speaking directly for the institution. He's also an author on Russia, war, nukes, and the author of one of my favorite books, The Death of Expertise. Tom Nichols, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be back with you, John. Lots to talk about. Uh, good timing in, in this particular booking, considering all the developments with regard to Iran. I want to start at the beginning and go kind of chronologically. So let's go back to just before the, the Soleimani hit and uh, what was going on there with the, the uh, U- U.S. embassy in Baghdad. What was your take on what the response from the United States should have been at that time? You know, well, you know, the problem is I haven't, as no, no one's seen the evidence that the administration is claiming. Um, 
as you know, people are incapable of reacting to this in anything but a kind of binary partisan way. Either it was a great idea or it was a bad idea. Um, I think when it comes to a guy like Soleimani, I think we all have to admit a day where he's off the planet is a better day. The question is, was this was that the right thing to do? Was that the right was that the right thing to do at that moment? Uh, and with the risks that were involved. I, I haven't seen the evidence, so I, I just don't know. I think the bigger issue when it comes to the administration's policy in these places is that it doesn't have a policy. I mean, if you had to answer what is our Middle Eastern policy in you know just a few sentences or a paragraph, um, other than the president hates everything Barack Obama did, I don't know that I could really give you an answer of what our strategic vision is anywhere. We have a national security strategy, but that was written mostly by Mattis and his assistants, and I don't think the president's ever read it. Um, so I, I think you know, the bigger problem is that we're constantly improvising and doing things in an ad hoc way, and I think that's partly how we got to the day where we hit Soleimani, where the president I'm sure somebody just convinced them, said, look, this is cost-free. The Iranians aren't going to respond. It's not a big deal. And he went, okay, let's do that. And, uh, you know, it's just no way to run a railroad. Tom, do you buy the, the New York Times report that the Soleimani hit was as a result of Trump being presented with a variety of options, the Soleimani hit being the most extreme that – that even those presenting it didn't believe he would actually pick, and that uh, the Pentagon itself was was shocked, I believe was the word the New York Times used, when he did, in fact, choose that option. D does that ring true to you? Uh, yes, yes, but yes and no. There's a good professor-ish kind of answer for you. I think that there are people who always do that. Um, that is a classic Washington maneuver, that if you want the guy to pick, if you want your guy to pick the option in the middle, um, you know, there's an old story about how Henry Kissinger, you know, used to say to Nixon, you have three options for dealing with the Soviet Union, total nuclear war, complete surrender to the Kremlin, or my idea. <laughs> um, you know, and so that that's a time-honored thing in, in D.C. But I also think uh, that there are people in the military, people who've been fighting in this, you know, in these theaters for a long time, who really wanted to get payback with Soleimani. There's a lot of people whose friends are dead or maimed uh, because of Qasem Soleimani. And I, and I think there was probably a constituency somewhere in the national security establishment for going after this guy for a long time. And, you know, in this case, they just managed to get to him. But I also, yeah. Um, you know, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me at all if someone said, well, let's put this option down and then we can get them to something more reasonable. And, um, you know, with Donald Trump, they just never learn that he, he will take the craziest option sometimes. All right. Now, you, you call it crazy. I, I want to get into that a little bit more. But first, from a technical standpoint, do you consider the Soleimani hit to be an assassination? Because I think that's an important word in all this. What's your view there? No, I don't. And, you know, the, people who follow me on Twitter saw me, um, you know, getting bombarded from both sides, all sides on this. Uh, I think Soleimani and I think the Bush and Obama administrations had reached this conclusion. Soleimani was a legitimate target. He wasn't just some random general. He wasn't like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He's not the Iranian Mark Milley. This is a guy running around in dark corners of the world 
doing all kinds of rotten things that the Iranian regime itself wants to be able to deny. Um, you know, he put himself out there as a combatant on, on a lot of battlefields, working with a lot of guys who were doing everything from terrorism to irregular warfare. So when I say a crazy option, I don't mean a morally wrong option. I mean, I think, you know, again, Donald Trump isn't the first guy that ever thought of taking out Soleimani. I think there's a lot of people in a lot of parts of the world that have wanted to, to plant that guy for a while. But that's a different question than whether that was a, a smart thing to do at this moment. And one of the things I'd point out is if you're going to go up against Iran, which is a formidable country, make sure that you've got all your ducks in a row, make sure that you don't have pots boiling in North Korea, make sure that you haven't pissed off all of your NATO allies, make sure that the Russians aren't laughing at you, make sure that the Chinese aren't rolling their eyes and basically dismissing you while they run uh, unfettered around the Pacific. You know, you, you pick your battles, you get your, you get your team in a row, and and get everybody on board and he trump just never does that i mean he has such a short attention span that he says you know let's do this thing and if it works out it's great if it doesn't everybody backfills and and tries to slap a new coat of paint and a happy face on things kind of as we saw um this morning so you know i i, I don't think it was an assassination i don't think it was murder i think the guy was a a, a perfectly legitimate target given his own actions over many years on multiple battlefields. Okay, so you call that action uh, legitimate, but I, you use the word crazy. Was it crazy because Trump didn't do it for the right reasons, didn't do his due diligence, or because you believe that, you know, the whole checkers versus chess uh, debate that uh, he's not playing uh, chess and that from a chess perspective, this will come back to haunt him eventually. W where do you stand on that? I think it's the due diligence and the getting your ducks in a row problem. Um, you know, if you're going to kill Soleimani, that should be part of a policy uh, that has been thought out, a strategy that has uh, a lot of parts to it of saying, we are going to move into a new phase of confrontation with Iran. It's going to be sustainable. It's going to, we're going to bring our allies on board. We're going to have the entire government, we're going to take a whole of government approach to use the jargon. We're going to have uh, coordinated opposition to the Iranians on every uh, front. Kind of like if you want to go to a, um, an equivalent to this, it's kind of like when Reagan in the early 80s signed a national security directive that basically said, you know, now that the recession's over and we've got a few other things, you know, battened down, we're going to take the fight to the Soviet Union. We're going to really put the yeah. amp up the pressure and put the screws to Moscow. And it was a finding. It was signed. Everybody knew what, what the policy was, and it paid off, I think, handsomely. I think in this case, Trump isn't playing any game. He's not playing checkers. He's not playing chess. He's... Um, you know, the best description I ever heard of the president is that he's a goldfish. He sort of stares at something for a minute and then darts off and then comes back. And, you know, he, he just doesn't have a sustained focus on anything. Right. And I think that's what we saw this time. And, and I agree with that in, in concept. But 
in a weird way, especially if you're lucky, sometimes that works. I mean, sometimes yeah. in especially in foreign policy, when they can't get a good read on you, they, aren't they uh, off balance? And, and therefore, sometimes, especially when you happen to be the, the commander in chief of the most powerful military in the world, doesn't it sometimes work out despite the, everything you just said? Sure, except uh, we're, I think we're ahead on point right now. I mean, we've, we've taken out Soleimani, and we haven't really paid very much for it right now. But there are two things that I would caution about. One is the Iranian response to this last night was very smart. It was a carefully calibrated escalation that really moved in. You know, Trump changed the rules of the game, and the Iranians said, okay, we can change the rules of the game too – and they launched ballistic missiles from Iran into a neighboring country at us with the clear implication that, you know, the next time they won't miss. Um, and they Trump got what he wanted, which was killing Soleimani. The Iranians got what they wanted, which was to get the Americans to back off. Um, and the other thing I would point out is the Iranians are not done. Um, we may be revisiting the wisdom of all this a year from now. Because, again, it's not part of a policy. For the Iranians, this is going to be a consistent, uh, ongoing fight, just as it has been for 40 years. This isn't going to be a one and done. Oh, no, Tom, I agree with you. And and one of the difficulties in evaluating these situations is that our time continuums are so different. In America, we talk about what happens today and and we don't even really think about tomorrow. In other parts of the world, they're they're talking generationally. And and, and so uh, that creates, by the way, many times an advantage for Trump. Because Trump is a guy who thinks about really just today, and and that's, that's it. And I agree with you that right now... He's ahead on points, uh, maybe significantly, especially with his base. Now, that could change in, in, a, in a heartbeat. But I'm curious as to why it is you believe that the Iranian strike last night where Trump can, with great credibility, say was feckless and, and basically they fired a dozen ballistic missiles into the ground and there were no U.S. casualties and minimal damage. Why was that a smart move by Iran? Because they up. They've, they've jumped up the escalatory ladder pretty high by going to ballistic missiles. This wasn't some guys with some Katyushas, you know, three clicks away, firing some rockets into the grass. This was not a deniable or feckless move. This was the use of ballistic missile technology to strike a neighboring country, which is something the Iranians haven't done in a long time. Um, and so I think it was smart because they, they realized that they killed a lot of people it was going to push Trump into a corner where even the advisors who want him to stop this would have had to say, well, they, they killed a couple hundred Americans. Now we have to go and get payback. The, what the Iranians did was to say, if you want to escalate this, uh, you know, we understand you got you got Soleimani. There will be payback for that in multiple places around the world. Tonight, we're just going to show you that if you want to keep this thing going, you don't really have the stomach to do that. We don't want it. You don't want it. And Trump said, no matter what the other bluster, Trump said, yeah, you're right. I don't really have a stomach for this fight. And that left the door open, I think, for people around him to say, Mr. President, it's a smaller pot than the one you wanted to win. Rake in the chips and walk away because they didn't hurt anybody. And the next time they can, then you're going to be in a major war in the Middle East, which is exactly what you campaigned on not doing. The problem with Trump is that he can't stop talking. 
And right. he keeps boxing himself in on dumb stuff like he, he started doing this morning. Okay, well, we'll get, uh, we'll get so to the we'll that's, get, his, that's the problem. We'll get to his speech in a moment, and I agree with most of what you just said there. But, but, but back to Iran, and I don't pretend to understand uh, Iran at all. I, I don't know that anybody really does. But if you look at this on paper— I mean, they, they they've lost everything so far. They you know, now uh, Trump is announcing we don't know the specifics, but new sanctions. Uh, they, they've fired. They've lost uh, over a dozen of their ballistic missiles. They've shown themselves to theoretically not be competent enough to, to pull off a legitimate attack unless you buy the theory that they did this on purpose. They've lost Soleimani and a, and a couple of other bad dudes. So so how how is this good for yeah, them? I, and, any, and, and and by the way, are, do you buy the idea that Trump is put, putting forward that Iran appears to be now standing down? Do you buy that? No. Um, I think we're the ones that are standing down at this point. Um, but I, I think you're putting way too happy of a face on a lot of this. The, the only part I think that's an unarguable win is that Soleimani's off the board. I mean, he, he wasn't irreplaceable, but he, he was incredibly valuable to the regime. Um, but I also think, you know, one thing I'd point out, he wasn't the life that guy was living. He wasn't going to live forever. I mean, you know, it's like Tony Soprano used to say, guys like me end up in, you know, dead or in jail. Mm -hmm. uh, so at some point, uh, I think somebody was going to ace Soleimani and it was probably going to be us. I just I'm just not sure if this was the right way to do it. But, so you know, so far, so good. The rest of it, I think you're wrong, John. Um, what? Where does this leave the Iranians? The Americans look like the bad guys. The Europeans and the Russians and the Chinese are going to roll their eyes at us and say, look, you go ahead and put sanctions, you know, do what you were going to do. We've already worked out the Iran deal. We're going to work with the Iranians the way we want to. And the Americans can go fly a kite. Um, you know, the, the Americans now look, whether you, think, whether you think it was the right thing to do or not, the Americans now look reckless uh, because the Trump simply, again, because he can't stop talking and because he clearly doesn't understand half the things that he's saying most of the time. And, you know, the Iranians are, other than losing Soleimani, um, what have the Iranians proven? I disagree with you that they were incompetent. I think they pulled off a strike that was actually very carefully calibrated, and they knew exactly what they were doing. And I think that's one of the reasons that this morning the president said, OK, game over. We're going to you know, I made my point. They made their point. Um, this whole business about standing down, I, I kind of wondered what he was talking about. They had, they took the last shot. We took the first one. And, you know, again, that leaves us ahead on points. But this isn't this isn't even close to being over. Oh, and, and I, I, I don't know. And the Iranians are going to keep building a nuclear weapon now. They they got this is something I want to go back to. <clears throat> you just excuse me for one second. Taking us out of the Iran deal, I, as you know, I was a solid opponent of the Iran deal. But I also thought that once we signed it and handed over the money and, you know, that our allies had committed to it, that we were stuck with it and that pulling out of it was stupid because it gives the Iranians the chance to say, we abided by the terms and now we're going to do whatever we want. And if you guys don't like that, go talk to the Americans because that's not our problem. And that's exactly what happened. And just to be clear, my point, which I don't know if you're misinterpreting or not, is not that this is uh, going to be a great thing for the United States moving forward. I just don't see how 
any of this is particularly good for Iran, uh, at least not where we are now. And and so, you know, and obviously we don't know. We, we have no idea how these these dominoes are going to fall. Uh, we might be in heated agreement here, John. I mean, I don't think this was a this is not a good day for Iran because they lost one of their best guys. I just don't see this as leaving the Iranians in a in a vastly worse off position because the Americans have now escalated the conflict without being ready for what escalating the conflict really means. And the Iranians, I think, are more than ready for that. And I think down the line, our short attention spans and our lack of coordination and our incompetence is actually going to undermine us here. I think the next president's going to have his hands full dealing with this. Well, um, well, assuming that, you know, it's not Trump. Well, we'll talk about the political implications in a moment, but let's talk about Trump's speech, which I do think has political implications. And it was clearly a political speech. I was fascinated by this speech because, you know, of course, with Trump's lack of discipline, you never know what the heck he's going to do or say. The the optics were a little strange with with all the military brass behind him. And he comes out very dramatically. And and from an optic standpoint and a perception perspective, the speech was very tough. It, it appeared to be tough, you know, you know, talking about how big his missiles are and and Iran will never get nuclear weapons as long as I'm president. And this is all Obama's fault. And so there's a lot of tough talk. But if you go beyond that, and I, I think you're going to agree with this, if you go beyond that from a substantive standpoint, there was a real disparity between the perception and the substance because you could argue the speech substantively was rather weak. There was no talk of regime change. That apparently is now off the table. Uh, You know, there was a reliance on, hey, we're going to have NATO take care of this. Uh, You know, we're we're not going to respond militarily to an attack on our air bases. We're going to go with with sanctions. I mean, I believe if Obama had given the same speech without all the tough optics, he would have been perceived as weak. Uh, I'm curious what you make. Not only that, but but if Obama had given that speech with all of the weird gestures and the sniffing and the mispronunciations and the, you know, wheeze, I mean, people, I mean, the Republicans would be marching down Pennsylvania Avenue talking about the 25th Amendment at this point. Yeah, but, um, but, do, you, it, but, do, you, but do you agree with, with oh, my— Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, so, so you agree that oh. from a from perception standpoint, the speech was tough, but substantively no, I, it was actually weak. I think it was an attempt to be tough, and I think if he had stopped, about 90 seconds in, if he had just come out and said, you know, um, I mean, I, I could have written that speech for him. If he had just come out and said, please, leaders of Iran, understand that there is no further, you know, upside in militarily uh, antagonizing the United States. And, um, you know, we look forward to working with our partners and blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, kind of just quietly left the podium because we are always the United States is always a more frightening country when we say less. You think about the month right after 9-11. We, the Bush administration practically went radio silent on this stuff. And people were terrified of what we were going to do next, which is exactly how we wanted it to be. The problem is Trump kept talking. And that speech came across to me um, not as Trump riffing, although there were clearly weird parts. Uh, somebody on Twitter pointed out that Mark Milley did a double take when he said, we're building hypersonic weapons, which, you know, we're not. <laughs> or, or if we are, it's highly classified, but who knows? Um, that just came out of nowhere. But I, I think the speech really came across as they, they told him to go to bed. They took his phone away from him. They, they put him on a lockdown while six guys from six different parts of 
the the government tried to hammer together a speech that had a little bit of everything thrown into the stew, and then they stood him in front of a teleprompter and he gave it. As you pointed out, you know, the, and the Iranians are good at this. They know what they're doing. They, they know what they didn't hear, that there was a lot of blustering about, you know, I didn't know where this thing about a nuclear weapon came from. That That's a different issue than what happened over the last two nights. Um, but, you know, as you say, it was bluster, 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 but there was nothing in it, and then he walked off. And so I thought, well, okay, this is why I thought, going back to our earlier conversation, the Iranians did okay. They came out of it with some things they want even if they lost Soleimani. And I think we're just in a different ballgame now. You mentioned you could have written the first part of the speech. You indicated you think multiple elements uh, of the administration ended up writing the speech. Who do you think is actually uh, in Trump's ear? Who do you think is really the big influencer in, in our policy right now? Pompeo, probably. Because Pompeo is the guy that never contradicts Trump and has really decided that he's going to be as completely sycophantic as it takes to stay in his job. Um, but every time, I'll just, even you know, going back to the beginning of the administration, every time Trump gives a prepared speech, I feel I, I used to be a speechwriter for a politician. Every time I hear a Trump speech, I can almost see the different fonts from the cutting and pasting from two or three different people. There's clearly like no head speechwriter mm-hmm. who, who kind of sands it down into a coherent whole. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think they've given up on doing that because they all stick it in there and they all got their each one of them writing this gets their piece of the speech, but they know he's just gonna wander off and start talking about whatever is on his mind at any given moment anyway. So what's the point? Now I, I noticed that on Twitter you already pointed out one of the, the two biggest elements of hypocrisy that I, I perceive from the entire if you want to call it Iran policy right now in our reaction uh, to the the whole uh, Soleimani uh, hit. And and one is this now new reliance on NATO uh, to help us out here. The other, which I find rather hilarious, and some people have pointed it out, although I don't think as much as uh, as it should have been pointed out, although bizarrely Tucker Carlson is one of them. And that is this this blatant hypocrisy that Trump suddenly trusts the intelligence agencies yeah. to tell him what to do uh, when it comes to very uh, high-risk uh, hits on you know, on foreign generals. Uh, could you talk about the, the hypocrisy on both the NATO and the intelligence agency fronts? Yeah, that, that is kind of a laugh. And, you know, um, I think Tucker Carlson is one of the, the most hypocritical charlatans on television these days. But give the guy credit for for one moment of honesty with, you know, kind of exclaiming, wow, I thought we weren't supposed to trust the deep state anymore. Right. And yet here's Trump saying, oh, the intelligence, you know, our people are the best. I trust what they tell me. Um, but that's in part, I think, is because the intelligence, I'm just skeptical about whether it's there. I mean, look, Soleimani is, was the kind of guy where any, on any given day you could say he was planning some imminent act of terror. You know, that's right. what he did. That was his that was his uh, his thing. So, you know, it's not hard. to. And actually, I think the administration missed an opportunity that instead of saying we have really reliable intelligence, they should have just come out and said, look, my predecessors wanted their shot at this guy. I finally had a clear shot. I took it and just leave it at that instead of trying to gin up some well, some legend about that. But well, but to me, thing, to, to me, though, I, yeah. I was wondering, OK, he's been president for three years. I mean, if this was something that should have been done long ago, we didn't get a shot out of him in three years. 
and amazingly, that shot only materialized uh, just a week or two after being impeached. Right. Go figure. Amazing coincidence. Uh, uh, you know, wow. Uh, who, who could have guessed that it would happen right at the most opportune moment? Um, on the NATO thing, I, again, I, I heard that part of the speech and I thought, OK, so some guy from the Europe desk at state said, hey, we have to put a paragraph about NATO in here. And I don't think Trump believes it. Again, remember, my Trump derangement is significant enough that I don't think Trump understands half of what he's saying Mm. at any given time. But it just that part of the speech was so awkward. Sounded like, yeah, Europe guy at state says you got to say something about NATO, so it doesn't hurt to say it. But it's ridiculous. You you know, the president has spent three years pissing all over NATO. I mean, you can't just do that. And then turn around and say, and now everybody get in line and help me handle this Iran thing. You know, when uh, Pence went to the Munich Security Conference and he stood there in front of the top security folks in Europe and said, and we hope you're all going to be on board with us now. And there was this stony silence. I mean, there wasn't even crickets. It was just dead silent with, you know, some uncomfortable throat clearing. That should have been, I mean, that's where we've been for for years now. So I, I don't, I'm not sure what. The president thought he was going to gain by saying, and I'm going to get NATO on board because I think people rolled their eyes all the way from London to Moscow to Beijing on that one. And, um, you know, but I think he just had to say it because the speech was too long and they don't have any discipline about this. Stuff. All right. Two last questions for you, Tom. Yeah. Um, as you can tell, I'm a believer that at this point, again, it can change very quickly. Trump is is ahead of the game on this. That He's winning. He, he this is this is a, a net political help. Uh, for him going into an impeachment trial and and obviously a reelection campaign. But if there is one part of this that's not getting enough attention, in my opinion, and that is that for sure this has clearly damaged our relationship with not just Iran, but Iraq. Could you talk about yeah. the, the Iraq part of this uh, whole equation and how you think that might play out? Well, let me back up for a second, John, and say I, that I agree with you that I think the president's ahead on this one. Um, again, you know, as of today, we've taken out Soleimani. The, you know, the Iranians haven't really taken a chunk out of us for doing that. They have now made it clear that they're going to be in the game in a different way by being willing to attack into Iraq, which leads to your next question. I'll say this about the politics of it. I don't think it changes anything. His base will – I mean, he, we could – invade Iraq tomorrow, and he could order 50,000 troops in the Middle East. And the same people that said they were voting against war, you know, after a night of watching Fox would turn around and say, well, he had to do it. And he's the president. And I trust him because he's my guy. So I don't think I don't think this I think this is a wash politically. The Democrats who hated him and the independents that are walking away from him aren't going to come back. The Republicans who, who loved him and the heartlanders who think he can do no wrong aren't going to walk away from him. So I, I just think he it's a net wash for him. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, that again, what policy are we pursuing here? What is it we meant to do in Iraq? Because of course, once we took out Soleimani in Iraq, that's where the, the action was going to be in terms of retaliation and, and further uh, action. So what what is it that the president and his team want out of this? Do they, do they want us to be kicked out of Iraq? Do we want to voluntarily, you know, draw down? Well, that's being taken out of our hands, and we're losing uh, some of our own power and leverage over this. And I, I, just, I, just, I don't know what he's doing, and I don't think he does either. 
I, I lied. I, I have one other question that you just brought up. Since you're a Russian expert, what do you think Russia is feeling about this whole thing? I think they cannot. I think it's the same feeling they've had for a while. They cannot believe their luck. They can't. Putin must be sitting there laughing his ass off at, at the Americans blowing up their own position all over the Middle East with friends and enemies alike, and they don't have to lift a finger. But you notice how quiet the Russians have been? Because the Rus- by the Russian standards, and I've spoken with Russians about this over the years, by the standards Russia would apply, Soleimani was a legit target. If Soleimani had been doing the stuff to us, that, to, to Russia, that he was doing to us, the Russians would have, would have iced him a long time ago. Mm-hmm. All right, and- uh, so so I, I just think the Russians feel like they've, this is just a unearned bonus for them. All right. And this is now the last question. Uh, I am a similar question in some ways, because I'm curious what you think of of how John Bolton is thinking right now. Obviously, former national security advisor, an Iran uh, hawk, uh, someone who has who has promised or or at least offered to testify at the impeachment trial if subpoenaed. What what do you make of what, what he must be thinking about all this right now? Yeah, that's interesting, because Bolton clearly has always wanted a conflict with Iran of some kind. And also, this is why I keep going back to the way the Iranians responded. Bolton, for years, has been a hard-ass about ballistic missiles and ballistic missile technology. And so now the Iranians have kind of, you know, I don't know that they did it for this reason, but inadvertently flipped the bird at John Bolton to say, hey, those ballistic missiles you've always been worried about, they work. Uh, watch us use them for the first time in years. And um, that's going to, that's probably going to make Bolton nuts. Um, but, you know, he may be hopeful that this is just the first round in an ongoing spiral of escalation that leads us into a war, because Bolton is all about regime change in Iran, even if the president isn't. And so he, he may be disappointed and he may be chagrined, but maybe he's hopeful that this gets worse instead of better. All right. Tom Nichols, thanks so much for your time. You can follow him at Radio Free Tom on Twitter. That's always fun to do that. And uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, John. Take care. So just to be clear on, on my uh, thoughts there, I, I hope it was in the interview with Tom, uh, we had a few minor disagreements. But I really do believe that right now this is working out well for Donald Trump. Whether that's based on luck, whether or not that's based upon uh, some semblance of strategy, his instincts, what have you, I don't know. Where I disagree with Tom, he said there at the end, this is a wash for the president. I don't believe that this right now is a wash. Again, this could change very quickly. Uh, It could change today, next week, next month. Who knows? So he really, all he really cares is that it doesn't change between now and November when he's up for re-election. But uh, where I think this helps him is a large part of the argument against Trump, and I've made this argument myself, is that he's unfit for office, that he's a danger, that he doesn't know what he's doing, and that eventually this is going to come back to haunt us. And to me, the biggest argument against the second term has always been, well, there's a, there's a number of them, but one of the biggest is we can't possibly go eight full years without a major crisis uh, causing us to be in a situation where we have this unqualified lunatic as president, and eventually the odds are that something is going to go very, very wrong. Correct. And so... That's, I still think, a valid argument. The problem is here we have 
maybe the first major example of where things could go really off the rails from an international military perspective, and they have not. You could argue that what happened in Syria uh, it was maybe the first example. I thought it was going off the rails there, and that story has just totally disappeared, and, and what should have been a situation that caused him harm did him no apparent harm. Uh, this right now might actually do him a benefit politically because he looks strong. He gets rid of a bad guy. There's no apparent cost. Uh, it appears as if Iran is standing down from a perception standpoint. I don't see where the loss here is. I see this as a gain. And to those who might be on the fence about Trump, and I realize there are very few people on the fence about Trump, but there might be some people who were either leaning towards him, but wary, can he handle this? You know, what happens in a crisis? For those people, this is working out just fine. And I'm a big believer that one of the great advantages Republicans have, if they do, in presidential elections is that they're allowed to appear to be much stronger than a Democratic candidate. A Democratic candidate can no longer be strong from a commander-in-chief standpoint. They can't do it because their base won't allow it. And so that's a huge potential advantage for Trump. And I, I don't think it's a coincidence this is a guy who back in 2011, 2012, incorrectly predicted that Barack Obama would try to get into a war with Iraq to try to help his re-election campaign. Now, I don't know to what extent the re-election campaign is motivating his decision. He's certainly more than capable of doing things for his own self-interest. That's one of the major problems I have with Donald Trump. But right now, that self-interest is working out, I think, better, again, caveat, the obvious one is that that could change. But as of right now, I think it's working out just fine for him. And it's also making impeachment. You know, it was, it, this could have gone in either direction. You know, if, if Iran had really done damage to us last night and caused U.S. casualties and we got escalated into a major war, I think it would have helped the impeachment push. I think there would have been some Republican senators who might have been nervous because that would have been highly unpopular and it would have been an indication that maybe Trump is not up to this. But so far, again, it might just be luck and it might just be temporary, but so far there's no indication of that. The, things are are still running properly. In fact, they appear to be running well. That might be because of the military and whatever advisors are in Trump's ear. But that's the reality. And I think that's one of the things that separates me from a lot of other anti-Trump commentators is that I believe very strongly that I am still exceedingly objective about Donald Trump. I get accused a lot of times of having Trump derangement syndrome, which I laugh about because if I had Trump derangement syndrome, I would be constantly wrong in predicting when things were going to be bad for him. And in fact, my record on that is about as good as anybody I know. It's almost perfect. I've written and, and made commentary numerous times over the last three years. This ain't going to hurt him. In fact, it might even help him. Well, we're very much in that boat right now, except that based on the current fact pattern, not only won't this hurt him, I think this will help him. Because remember, people vote in presidential elections in large part based upon the commander-in-chief concept. 
This is why you have a, several states that tend to vote Democratic when it comes to state offices, places like Kentucky or West Virginia, and vote Republican when it comes to presidential elections. I'm not suggesting that that uh, people make a very sophisticated distinction. A lot of it's subconscious, because after all, I love the poorly educated. But that's the reality, and that's a reality that plays into Trump's hands. Now he is more than, ca- than capable of blowing this at any moment, and circumstances may overtake him. But as of right now, this is clearly a net positive uh, for Donald Trump. Uh, Whether it should be or not, whether it will be in the long run or not, I don't know. I don't think anybody does know, but that's the way I see it as of uh, today. Now, in a moment, we'll have a few more thoughts on this episode of the podcast regarding the current political situation, as well as the state of the impeachment trial and whether or not John Bolton will actually testify. But first, here's an important interview I did with Tom Bauer, the founder of our sponsor, Imbue CBD. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and for your sponsorship of the program. Please uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your company, Imbue Botanicals. Sure, John. Imbue Botanicals produces really the most extensive line of premium clinical-grade full-spectrum CBD products, including tinctures, capsules, topical lotions and salves, and even award-winning beauty products. They're available in multiple strengths for both people as well as pets. Our premium Colorado-grown hemp products are non-GMO, cruelty-free, and even vegan. Now, a lot of people might not be that familiar yet with CBD. It's getting a lot of publicity. But for those who aren't, what is CBD and why do you guys think it's so important? CBD is short for cannabidiol. It's one of the 115 or so cannabinoids that are found in the cannabis plant. It's generally accepted as the cannabinoid or or the element, basically, that provides the health benefits for cannabis. But science has shown really that CBD works best when combined with all the other cannabinoids and the natural terpenes that are found naturally in the plant, which is why our products are full spectrum, meaning they offer a full cadre of all the cannabinoids and terpenes for maximum effectiveness. Now, Tom, you mentioned that Imbue uses hemp. Tell our audience, if you will, the difference between hemp and marijuana, and why your product is not the latter. Great, John. It's really important to understand this. You know, we're all familiar with medical marijuana. Our products are, are not made from marijuana. They're actually made from hemp. Basically, hemp and marijuana are both the cannabis sativa plant. The difference is that hemp contains extremely low levels of THC, which is the cannabinoid that makes you high when you ingest or smoke marijuana. By law, hemp must contain 0.3% or less of THC by dry weight. So, so low, basically, that you can't get high from the product. So, in essence, basically, with hemp, you get all the health benefits of medical marijuana without the high or the psychoactive effect of THC. I should also add here that Congress last year passed the 2018 Farm Bill, which essentially legalized hemp federally and descheduled all the non-THC cannabinoids. So, Essentially, it's, it's, uh, it's legal, which obviously people want to know. Is, you know, can, can I buy it? Can I use it? It's legal. Now, when, when I use it, it's really helped my sleeping. I've only just started using uh, some of your products. But tell us, uh, what are some of the benefits that our listeners might find if they, if they use Imbue Botanical products? Really great question, John. We're actually not allowed to make claims about CBD or products per the FDA. Just an aside, if your listeners come across sites out there that are making health claims, we should always just avoid them. Just you don't want to deal with, with folks like that. It's, it's not legal to do that. 
But that doesn't mean that there aren't health benefits to CBD. We at MU Botanicals always encourage our customers to do their own research. There is a ton of information and studies available on the Internet. You want to talk to your physician, your independent pharmacist, even your veterinarian, you know, become informed. We've seen some absolutely amazing things personally and with our customers. Obviously, you know, the onus, if you will, is on each individual to to go out there and, and do the kind of research to see if it may be a fit for the kind of things that they're experiencing. Also, you know, check out our website, which has a ton of additional information as well. And that website is? It's www.imbuecbd.com. That's www.imbuecbd.com. Now, you mentioned the FDA, and just before we taped this interview, there was a new story where the FDA put out a warning and sent letters to, I think, 15 different CBD companies. Yours was not one of them. It was perceived as the FDA basically, I don't know, seemed to be like, backing away a little bit from CBD. What was your interpretation of what the FDA did and and how should our listeners interpret it? That's an extremely good question as well, John. And I think first and foremost is what the FDA is doing, especially when they're sending out letters to companies that they send letters out to, is doing their job. Their job is to really protect the American public from, you know, basically, you know, drugs that shouldn't be there, that aren't doing what they're supposed to do, that can cause harm, and also making sure that companies are doing what they're supposed to do. In in the case of these letters, these companies were making health claims simply because of how FDA operates and and the way that, uh, you know, CBD, which is basically a kind of a a brand new uh, thing for FDA, they're not allowed to make. You know, I'm glad that they're doing that. You know, we never make claims uh, at Imbue Botanicals. That's something that, that is, again, is, it goes back to the customer to do a lot of their own research on. They also came out with some basic overviews and essentially said you should really know what you're doing before you take CBD. It's not necessarily something you should be taking in water and in food products. You should basically get the kind of information that you need and talk to your healthcare team, your physician, your pharmacist, your, your veterinarian, to make sure that there's a medical professional, you know, kind of assisting in the process. Now, in my experience, having used the product and seen the packaging and everything, you guys are totally first class, but first class comes with some expense. You guys are a little bit more expensive than your competitors. So tell us tell us uh, why you bring more value. We are more expensive than some folks, and certainly not more expensive than others, but uh, but we're, we are a higher-priced product, and the reason for that is, is where we grow, how we extract, how we formulate our products. We do that for maximum effectiveness. And, you know, what our folks tell us, and whether they're the pharmacies that we sell to or the customers that use our product or patients who use our product every day, they tell us that the product works and works better than things that uh, other products that they bought. It's more expensive to do it correctly, but ultimately that's obviously what customers want. If you're going to spend the money, they want something that works, and that's what our products do. So, Tom, if our listeners want to buy your products and, or learn more about them, where should they go? Go to our website. It's www.imbuecbd. That's www.imb, as in boy, imbuecbd.com. Tom, thanks so much for your time and your sponsorship. John, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Appreciate it. So with regard to the upcoming impeachment trial, There's been a standoff between Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, and Mitch McConnell, the Majority Leader of the Senate, where there doesn't seem to be much movement in either direction. Pelosi is trying to force McConnell to give up some concessions on how this impeachment trial will work before she hands over the impeachment managers. McConnell has basically said, go pound sand. 
I thought in the last episode that that Pelosi was getting a, a tiny little bit of traction because Republican Senators Murkowski and Collins had uh, indicated at least uh, some hesitancy in supporting everything that McConnell wanted in the trial. Uh, but because of a statement by Mitt Romney, who continues to be a, a major disappointment uh, and someone who I have said numerous times will always act as if he's going to do the principal thing and then almost inevitably does not end up doing it. But because of statements by him and by McConnell, it appears, unless McConnell was very much bluffing, he is claiming that he has enough votes to do a Senate trial without any Democratic votes whatsoever. And if that's the case, then that is game, set, match for Trump being removed from office. Correct. Because there's no possible way that when the jury is already rigged and the rules are rigged and you're nowhere near the 65 percent of public support for removal that you would need to get Republican senators attention, there's no way you're going to get to 67 votes. I mean, that was already a very much a long shot. But if you're controlling the rules, therefore you're controlling the content, therefore you're controlling any chance that public opinion would dramatically shift. And I don't, I've never held out much hope that dramatic, there would be a dramatic shift in public opinion into the 65% range, regardless of the fact pattern, because we're just living in such a divided age and where people aren't paying that much attention and facts don't seem to matter and all the reasons that I've stated in the past. But now... That ends any chance because now you're controlling the narrative when you control the rules. And it's also important to point out that if they have, in fact, indicated to McConnell that they will support uh, what he needs, it also means that Romney, Collins and Murkowski are at the very least not convinced or ready to vote to convict uh, and appear to be in the boat of, you know what, they're going to say this is all bad, but the case wasn't proven. This is, this is basically what happened in the Clinton impeachment. You know, the, the Republican senators wanted no part of this, so they, they put on a sham trial. They got it over with as quickly as possible, and, and they moved on. Uh, they allowed limited witnesses uh, via tape depositions. There was no chance that this was going to dramatically move public opinion. And so when you limit the amount of evidence at a trial, you inherently give people who want to be able to say, well, the case wasn't proven enough cover to be doing exactly that. And in Clinton's uh, impeachment, the Republican senator from from uh, Pennsylvania, Arlen Specter, actually ended up voting not proven based on Scottish laws, as absurd as that was. It's just flat out ridiculous. But we're going to basically get the same thing now, in my opinion, based upon where things appear to be headed from Romney, Collins and Murkowski. They're going to they're going to have enough cover to say, well, you know what? There just wasn't enough there. Now, the, the big wild card on whether or not, from a factual standpoint, there will be enough there is whether or not John Bolton, the former national security advisor uh, to President Trump, will actually testify. He made a lot of news earlier this week by saying that he would testify at the impeachment trial of Donald Trump if he was subpoenaed. And my initial reaction to this was, what a load of crap this is by Bolton. This appears to be an incredibly cynical move, because this is a guy who avoided testifying at the uh, impeachment uh, uh, in, in the House, 
he did not take part in the, in the impeachment inquiry in the House of Representatives, when, if he had been willing to do that, Democrats would have been happy for him to testify. There would have been huge national media coverage of that. It would have been by far the highlight of that impeachment inquiry. It would have gotten a lot more attention from people who may not have been fully engaged or even partially engaged in the impeachment inquiry, and it could have had a major impact. He avoided that when the Democrats were in charge. Now that he knows that Republicans are in charge and that it will be very difficult to get enough votes to issue a subpoena for him, he's making the offer, so it makes it look like he's willing to talk, In my belief, he knows it'll never happen because McConnell doesn't want it to happen. Now, to be clear, Mitt Romney has said he would like to hear from Bolton. Joe Manchin, who is a Democrat, but who is very not pro-Trump, but friendly towards Trump because he's in West Virginia and West Virginia is a very pro-Trump state. He has said that the impeachment trial would be a sham if John Bolton did not testify. So, I mean, there, there are people who are influential who want Bolton to testify, but I think Bolton is making a calculated move that it's never going to actually happen, and this actually puts him in the best position. So he does not have any blood on his hands with regard to testifying against Trump. What he's going to say remains a mystery. He's already announced that he has a book coming out, so this will greatly enhance the attention to his book, the media coverage of his book. It'll give people a reason to buy the book. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that plus he even announced this news on his own Twitter feed. He didn't leak it to a, a major news organization. So he was even promoting his own Twitter feed. So this was a brilliant marketing move mover by John Bolton, in my opinion. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe he will testify. I'd love to see it. Uh, I know there are some people in the Senate who would like to see it, like I said, with Mitt Romney being one of them. I just don't believe that's going to occur. I do not believe that John Bolton is ever going to testify live uh, in the U.S. Senate chamber in the impeachment trial of Donald Trump. Then, of course, there's the issue of what would he say? There's been a lot of speculation that, which I think is bogus, that somehow what's happened in Iran is a way to placate Bolton and keep him from from uh, uh, flipping on Trump 100 percent. I, I think that's too complex, too conspiratorial for my blood. The New York Times has a source close to Bolton that indicates that his testimony would be very damaging to Trump. Okay, maybe yes, maybe no, interesting. But if that's the case, why the hell didn't you testify in the House of Representatives? That's where John Bolton should have testified. He avoided that, uh, you know, basically putting up barriers to where there would be a legal battle that would have taken too long for that to occur. He was smart enough to know that. So if you want to testify, there are ways to make that happen. And if you don't really want to testify, there are ways to make sure that those hurdles cannot be overcome in the time period that is allotted. And it appears to me as if John Bolton is being incredibly cynical about that. And that's symbolic of the way things work now. Maybe they always did. Maybe we didn't realize it. But the incentives are now so perverse that there's really no risk-reward ratio for anybody to take a risk and tell the truth against their own self-interest. What Bolton appears to be doing is what's in the best interest of John Bolton and his future career, his book, 
uh, and he's got to, you know, he's young enough where he's still got to worry about uh, is he going to be able to live off the uh, the grift uh, of the right wing? And if he testifies against Donald Trump strongly in an impeachment trial, that's over. Uh, and he's not the kind of guy that the left is going to embrace in, in all likelihood. So that's my view on John Bolton. As far as the, the overall politics of this, it's still very difficult to know. Uh, whether or not this Iranian situation is going to dramatically impact things like Trump's approval rating or his standing against Democrats in a general election, specifically Joe Biden or Joe Biden's position uh, within the Democratic uh, primary battle. That's all still being figured out. We don't have enough polling data to know for sure. At this point, I'm going to guess that from a Democratic standpoint, it's all a wash uh, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that the increased importance on a commander in chief would be an advantage to Joe Biden. But it's too soon to know that there's a big debate next Tuesday as we get closer and closer to the Iowa caucuses. Uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, what happens there. As is always the case, uh, we end each edition of the Individual One podcast with an updated prediction on whether or not Trump will finish out his first term in office and whether or not he'll be reelected, partially because I think right now this is a positive for him, as I've already mentioned, with regard to what's going on with Iran. The numbers have slightly improved for Donald Trump. Uh, I thought in the last episode that if this Iranian situation really blew up in a negative way, it could backfire on him and result in a scenario where he does not finish his first term in office. But that seems right now to have been diminished. So I'm going to put the number, uh, the percentage number of him not finishing his first term in office at just 6% between now and uh, the end of his first term. And his reelection number, I'm sorry, but I call it like I see it, it is now as high as it has ever been in the history of the Individual One podcast. I'm putting that at 49 percent psychologically it's a big barrier to go to 50 percent or 51 percent that'll be a big moment in the show if and when that happens but right now i'm going to put it at 49 percent chance of re-election that'll do it for this edition of the individual one podcast please remember to subscribe rate review and share it via social media follow us on twitter at individual one pod that's individual the number one pod my name is john ziegler until next time you're listening to the global story network